Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 20. Psalm 20 is what uh, we'll be picking up in this morning as we finish Psalm 19 last week. We'll see next week especially that um, really Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 could be read together. Um, There's a lot of parallels between the two, and um, whereas we'll see this morning Psalm 20 is primarily a uh, prayer that David is offering up and leading the people of Israel in praying as well, and, and praying for and about the Anointed One, the Messiah, Psalm 21 then becomes basically a lot of the answers uh, about those prayers or the the confirmation, if you will, that those prayers will be answered. Um, This morning as we look at Psalm 20, we will look also at how um, these prayers um, are answered in the life of Christ in particular. Uh, But just uh, by way of giving you a heads up, um, we will see a lot of the the same things when we get to uh, Psalm 21 uh, next week. So beginning together as we read Psalm 20, which is a psalm of David, we pick up in verse 1 and we'll read uh, the whole psalm together. David here is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and we read beginning in verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May He send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May He remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the King. May he answer us when we call. Well, let's go again uh, to the Lord in prayer. Father, it was the greatest desire of Your servant David that You would not only keep the covenant promises made to him about him in his own life, but that You would fulfill Your Word in raising up one of His offspring to be the King of kings. To be the one who would be exalted over all creation, all nations, and established on the throne of the Kingdom of God forever. And as He often looked forward to those days to come, He rejoiced in being able to see what a foretaste of the fulfillment of these promises as You 
kept your word even to him. He sought that the King of kings would be glorified and that through, through that glory, through that seeking of your promises to be fulfilled, He, as well as all of your people, will be blessed. And so Lord, I pray for all of us, I pray that we would have this same heart, that we would be those who are marked primarily as a people who seek to bring glory to Christ, who seek in every aspect of our lives to honor Him and to exalt Him over all things, and that we would come to understand as well that as we pursue the glory of God, that from that we will be greatly blessed. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it is certainly the case, and probably um, no surprise to say, that in the modern evangelical church, there is often a very great emphasis that is placed on the individual. Salvation is about my personal relationship with Christ. The gospel is about how I get saved. The Bible is for my personal Walk. The church is for my own edification. And to be clear, as I say these things, these are, these are not things that are altogether wrong. Right? Um, I don't want you to immediately get the impression that it's, it's, it's wrong to be thinking about your own salvation when you're thinking about uh, the gospel. There is indeed a real focus on the individual, even in the New Testament. Paul says of himself, for example, in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or he says elsewhere in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, of course, whenever Scripture teaches that we must believe in Christ to be justified. It is talking about an individual believer. Right? There, is a, there is a kind of emphasis on the individual. No one can believe for you. You have to repent and believe yourself. And so again, there is a real focus on the individual in the New Testament. But I think that within the church, there is also a kind of unbalanced individualism that often dominates where literally everything becomes about me, becomes about myself. When someone reads the Bible, it's often a reading that has themselves as the focus. They read, for example, the story of David and Goliath. And wouldn't you believe it? They happen to be David, and Goliath is all of their problems, all of their issues, and that if they just believe in the Lord, the Lord will give them victory over their Goliaths. Or they can read the story of Jericho and the walls crumbling down is about God resolving all of their various problems. Right, there's their there's a kind of hyper-individualistic reading of Scripture itself. 
We can see this individualism in some of its worst forms in many churches where the Bible itself is never really taught. Every Sunday becomes about some personal issue, often nowadays psychological in nature that people are having. There's a series of messages that that, that may be given on something like depression or Then another series that's on loneliness. And then another series that's on happiness. And then another that's on leaving a legacy. And of course, if you need to raise any kind of money for a a building fund, well, where do you go? You go to the book of Nehemiah and you start talking about the rebuilding of the walls. Right? Everything becomes about me. It's very man-centered. There's a wide variety of topics that are addressed and It often comes with a smattering of Bible verses here and there, but no one ever actually learns the Bible. They're not learning what its message is, what it's actually about. The focus becomes so much on the individual in a very unbalanced way that God becomes more so an afterthought And the Bible essentially gets turned into one massive book of cliches and proverbial sayings. But of course, the way that Scripture addresses the individual is a very kind of opposite approach. Over and over, the individual is directed to stop looking at themselves and to look upwards to God. To look to Christ. To focus upon Him. To look to His kingdom. To look to His promises. And it's only as they look upward to God and fix their minds and hearts on His Word and His promises that anything in their own lives will ever begin to change. We are constantly throughout the Word called to seek the will of God. And then from that, from that pursuit, everything else flows. He's first. I was going to say we're second, but we're not often even second, right? (laughs) We're often even further down from that, right? The Lord is first, though. And we pursue His glory first. We pursue the exaltation of His name. We, We proclaim His Gospel first and primary, and then from that, again, everything flows. That is the proper biblical order. And we see this biblical order of things even in the psalm that we're in this morning. This is a psalm that expresses a desire that the Lord would answer the cries and prayers of His people. It's a psalm where David is leading his people to call upon the Lord to fulfill their desires. To save them. To deliver them from all their enemies. And we can see this in the very end of the psalm. The, the, The last phrase we read, the last sentence says, May He answer us when we call. Right? There, there's, a, there's a kind of individual desire here. That's what the people, David included, want. They want God 
to answer them, answer us when we call. But in the psalm, the way that their prayer is answered is by God fulfilling His promises to the King, to the Messiah. Or to put it another way, the psalm emphasizes the fact that the blessings that will come upon the people of God will only come upon them if God fulfills His promises to and about Christ. And so the order is Christ the King is to be exalted by God and then second, from that, His people will be blessed. And we can see this this kind of order, again, even in the, the whole last verse of the psalm. The very last verse essentially summarizes for us what the whole psalm is actually about. What the point of the prayer is. And notice with me what it says. It says at the end in verse 9, O Lord, save the King. Right? This is kind of like our, our British anthem. right? God save the King. Right? Not, not God save the Queen anymore. Right? It's, it's God save the King. Right? This, this is derived essentially from Psalm 20. O Lord, save the King. That's first. You see. That's the primary focus. Save the King. Save your anointed. Your Messiah. And then, second, may He answer us when we call. David's hope, in other words, and his people's hope, and our hope, and our desires are first to be about the exaltation of Christ. Christ is to receive all the glory. He is worthy of the highest praise and honor. All things are to be subjected to Him. And then from that, as we pursue His glory, we too will be granted what we seek. And so I want to unpack this idea further for us this morning as we make our way through the psalm. And we're going to do so by dividing the psalm into two parts. Again, just as the very last verse does. Verse 9 summarizes the whole psalm, even its divisions for us. And the first part of the psalm that we'll look at is in verses 1-5, to where we see David here leading the people of God to seek the glory of the King. That is what their priority is to be. They are to pray for their King and specifically that God would establish Him. And it's worth pointing out that the King they are praying for is not specifically David. As, as we mentioned earlier, David is an anointed king, but here David is a participant in the prayer, leading the people of Israel to offer up this prayer. And so the king that they're praying for ultimately is David's son. It is his offspring. It is ultimately the Christ. We see in verse 6, for example, that David himself here is speaking, and he's speaking about another 
person. And that other person is the Messiah, the anointed. He says, now I know that the Lord saves His anointed, His Messiah. And so in verses 1-5, to when David here is leading Israel in a prayer for the king, it's ultimately, ultimately about Christ our Lord. And what are the people praying here concerning Him? Well, there are several things that we can, we can note in the first five verses. The first, the first prayer is that the Lord would save him, save the anointed, save the king, save the Christ from all his afflictions. Notice what verse 1 says. May the Lord answer you. Again, you being the messianic king, may he answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And then in verse 2, the prayer is that this help would come from the place in which God dwells. His holy place. His sanctuary. Identified as being in Zion, but later in the psalm, also being in heaven. May He send you help, it says, from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Of course, one of the things that is assumed here is that Messiah will have troubles. We see again that it says that a day of trouble will come upon him. David here, and as we've seen elsewhere in the Psalms, David understood that in the same way he himself had troubles in his own life, so also would his offspring, would his greater son have troubles. In fact, even as later the prophet Isaiah would prophesy, we know that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, would be a man of sorrows. He would have great troubles and afflictions. And of course, we see this without question in the life of Christ. Persecuted from the very first day he began preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was rejected by his own people when he came to them. He was betrayed by even one of his closest disciples. He was crucified for treason and blasphemy even when he had committed no sin at all. But the prayers that were made for him a thousand years prior and that were sung and repeated throughout the generations, those prayers that we find here in this psalm, those prayers were answered. When the day of trouble came, the Lord God protected him, protected his Christ. He answered from his holy heaven. He had promised. Elsewhere, Psalm 16, that He would not let His Holy One see corruption. And therefore, He guarded Him even from the power of death when He caused Him to rise again on the third day. We see also in this prayer a petition that the Lord would accept Christ's offerings Verse 3, it says, 
May He remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. And of course, it wasn't the blood of bulls and rams and goats that Christ offered, but it was His own blood. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the Good Shepherd who lays His life down for the sheep. He told His disciples that He came into the world not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. When Christ went to the cross, even though He was crucified by the hands of wicked men, there was never a single moment when His sovereign plans were being hindered or when His will was being thwarted. The crucifixion, the crucifixion was a willing offering of His own life. He was carrying out in that moment His office as the great High Priest. He was offering up His sacrificial blood that could be sprinkled in the heavenly temple on our behalf so that we might not only have the forgiveness of our sins, but that we might also have access to God. The, the curtain in the earthly temple was torn in two at His death, thus testifying and symbolizing that the way to access to God was no longer barred, was no longer reserved only for one man, the high priest, once a year, and only after he's offered sacrifices for his own sins. No, entrance into the very presence of God was now made possible for everyone through the shed blood of Christ. And when Christ offered Himself as our substitute, God received that offering as an acceptable offering. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16 says, for example, that through the cross, we were reconciled to God. And so in answer to the prayer for the Messianic King that His offerings would be regarded with favor, the very fulfillment of those prayers, the fulfillment of Christ being glorified on the cross is what brings to us blessings, eternal life, reconciliation, forgiveness of sins. Again, you see the pattern here. The prayer is being made on behalf of the King. That His works that His offerings would be accepted by God. And through those works, through His offerings, we then receive blessings. But still further, we see another petition in this prayer. There is a petition that all of Christ's desires would be fulfilled. Verse 4, May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. <coughs> now, what did Christ desire? What, what was on His heart? What did He long for? 
And of course, when we come to the New Testament, we could probably point to many things, but I want to draw your attention this morning just to this one thing. Christ desired a people. He desires a people. In John chapter 6, for example, in verse 37, Jesus said that the Father had given to Him a people. And in verse 39 of that same chapter, He says that it was the will of the Father that He should lose nothing of all that has been given to Him, but raise it up on the last day. Now, over the centuries, theologians have referred to this as the covenant of redemption. This was a covenant that was made between God the Father and the Son in eternity past, before the world ever began, that the Son would be given a people by the Father and He would lay His life down for them. They would become His own possession. And even when we go back into the Old Testament and look at promises that were made about Christ, what do we find? We find <coughs> excuse me, the same thing. We find that He would be given a people. In Psalm chapter 2, for example, in verse 8, we think back to when we, we opened up the book of Psalms and looked at chapter, or Psalm 2. In verse 8, this is a psalm that is about the establishing of Christ's throne. And here the Lord speaks to Christ and He tells Him, Ask of Me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And when Christ gave His life on the cross, it was to secure that people. That people that He was promised long ago that would be His possession. People like you and me. People in the days of His sacrifice 2,000 years ago and people now 2,000 years later. Whenever someone comes to Christ and they are saved by His blood, that's when we become His treasured possession. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, for example, that Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So that's one of the things here that we we can see. We can point to many others, but that's one of the things that Christ desires. He desired His people. He desired the people that the Father had given to Him. And we see here in the psalm that the prayers that were made on His behalf, that His heart's desire would be fulfilled, those prayers are answered as He gathers His people to Himself. And then lastly, we find a prayer being offered on behalf of Christ's prayers. There's a petition that Christ petitions would be answered. Verse 5, you notice with me there. May we shout for joy over Your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all Your petitions. 
Now, that's, that's an interesting quest, request to think about, right? They, they are praying for the prayers of Christ Himself, that all of them would be answered. And in fact, there is nothing that Christ requests that is not granted to Him because He is always praying perfectly the will of God. And if we think about His role as High Priest in particular, this becomes especially good news for us that every single one of His prayers are answered with yes. It's fulfilled. One of His ministries, for example, on behalf of His people is that He intercedes for them. He is constantly interceding. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says that Christ is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. Similarly, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 draws an inference from the fact that Christ's priesthood is permanent. It's unlike the priesthood that had come before His in the priesthood of the Levites where it wasn't. Permanent, right? You could only serve as a priest for a certain amount of years, some 30 years, and then some other priests had to serve. But Christ's priesthood is permanent. And the author of Hebrews draws an inference from that fact. And he says, consequently, he, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is always in His office as priest interceding, praying for His people. And one other example, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says of Christ and our forgiveness of sins. It says there, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When even as believers we sin, we rebel, we fall into temptation, we, we are summoned to come to our Christ, to come to our King, to come to our priest, to confess our sins, and He cleanses us of our sins and intercedes on our behalf. Do you ever look at your life and you wonder how could God ever receive me? How could I, a great sinner, ever be forgiven? The answer is because of the shed blood of Christ on your behalf, but it's also because if you are His, He is constantly interceding for you. Even as you have sinned subsequent to coming to Christ, His work as a priest continues for your behalf. Just as the Israelites needed Moses to intercede for them when God's wrath threatened to destroy them because of their sins, so also is it the case in a very similar way that Christ's work as mediator for us provides a permanent reminder that our sins have been forgiven And thus, the wrath of God is turned away from us. But He also intercedes. I think it's worth pointing out. He also intercedes 
so that we might persevere to the end and be kept for the great inheritance of the kingdom to come. His, in other words, intercessory work is not only about our sins being forgiven, but it's also about keeping us, guarding us, preserving us for the promises that are to come. We see this ministry of Christ throughout His life. When when Peter fell, for example, by denying his Lord three times. You know what preserved him? You know what restored him? You know why it was the case that he didn't end up like Judas in utter despair, committing suicide because he had sinned against Christ? It wasn't because his will was stronger than Judas's. It wasn't because there was something in Peter that made him altogether different from Judas. What distinguished the two and what kept Peter and ultimately restored Peter was the fact that Christ prayed for him. Christ told him, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. To enter into you, Peter. Just like he does with Judas the son of destruction, but I have prayed for you. The intercessory work of Christ guards Peter. When Christ's disciples carried out the ministry of proclaiming the Gospel to the world, it was not that they did so because of their own strength alone. It's not as if it was the case that these early Christians just had some greater resolve, some greater determination to glorify Christ in the preaching of the Gospel. They carried out their assigned task by the power of the prayers of Christ on their behalf. Christ, for example, says in His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 9, He says there, I am praying for them. Who? His disciples. I'm praying for them. To the Father, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. And then He adds in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in Your name which You have given Me that they may be one even as we are one. Keep them. That's His prayer as priest. Keep them. Guard them. And they were kept and they persevered unto the end. Despite all the persecutions that came their way, despite all the afflictions you could think about that fell upon a man like Paul being beaten numerous times, dragged in the streets, mauled by animals, shipwrecked, sick. How do you get through that? Because Christ was praying for him. Christ was interceding. You, you think about how Christians in the first century, in the second century, endured all the things they did in walking faithfully with Christ 
even being fed to lions in a Roman Colosseum. How do you remain faithful when the world and the kingdom of darkness is assaulting you and beating you down to dust? Well, you have something greater than the world. You have the prayers of Christ interceding on your behalf, praying, guard them to the Father. And in the same way that He prayed for His disciples, He also prays for you and me. He said in that same high priestly prayer in verse 20 of John 17, He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word. That's you and me. We've heard the Gospel through the Word of those early disciples. That's who He's praying for here. I'm not only praying for them, I'm praying for all those who would come and believe in Me. And among the several things that He goes on to pray for, one is that we would be with Him. He says in verse 24, Father, I desire... Here's another desire of the Messiah. I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am to see My glory that You have given Me because You loved Me before the foundation of the world. Christ wants His people, His treasured possession. You and me, believers in Christ, He wants His people to be with Him where He is. And to that end, He prays for us. Friends, that's really good news. Because those prayers don't go unanswered. Every single prayer receives the answer, yes, let it be done. It will be fulfilled. And so when He's praying for you and me who have come to Him that we would be with Him where He is and be like Him, that prayer will not fail. You can have all the powers of darkness and Satan and the the devil, the flesh, everything you can think of coming against you, assaulting you, and it will never prevail. What does Christ say of the church? The gates of hell will never prevail against it. Why? Because Christ is interceding. He's praying. And His prayer is that you and I would be with Him. And those prayers will never go unheard. That is a great assurance for us, friends. Because He prays for us, we will never fall. We may stumble. We may fall into temptations in many ways, but because we are His and He is the King, The king will never lose anything that belongs to him. And so we see here in this psalm an emphasis on seeking the glory of the king. 
seeking that all of His prayers, all of His desires would be fulfilled. The primary prayer, the hope and desire that is being expressed is that Christ would prosper in all His ways, that His will would be done, and that His name would be exalted. And it's only through seeking His glory first that our good and our blessing If we flip that order, right? if we reverse that, we start pursuing our own desires, our own glory first, we will necessarily become idolaters and will never know any actual good. But if we have the order right, if we seek the glory of Christ's name and His kingdom, if He is our banner, that we are proud to wave, and if the anthem of our life is to sing His praises, well then all of what we seek will be granted. Because we will be seeking what is in the will of God. And from that, all of our security and all of our blessings will flow. And this is what we see in the second part of the psalm. Because David seeks the glory of the king, he is then confident that God will grant what he seeks. In the second part of the psalm, what becomes evident is that David, as well as God's people, they have a desire to have victory over their enemies. And by enemies, I'm not just talking about those very particular enemies that David was confronted with in his own life, like Absalom and Saul. I mean anyone who does not trust in the Lord. Anyone who is an enemy of the Lord and an enemy of the people of the Lord. Any of those who fall in the category of the wicked. The the offspring of the serpent. Those who are at enmity with God's Christ and God's people. David, as well as God's people, desire victory over all those enemies. He desires that God would fulfill this. That He would be exalted over the wicked. And He is confident that it will happen. But again... What we find in the logic of the psalm is that David's confidence that he will have victory over his enemies stems from the greater hope that Christ will have victory over His. In verse 6, again, if you look with me there, David says, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Now, notice how this is stated. Now I know. Something has happened. Now I know. Something has happened in David's life that has provided a kind of confirmation. A kind of sign to him. 
He's probably writing this psalm near the end of his life, and as he's reflecting on events that have already transpired, it leads him to this conclusion. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. And it's probably the fact that so many times in David's own life, God saved him from being killed at the hands of wicked men. And He did so because He had promised to give David rest from his enemies in keeping with His covenant promise to establish His throne and raise up an offspring who would rule forever for Him. And so as David is reflecting on the clear times when God has kept His promises to him, he knows that he will likewise keep His promises concerning His Son, who would be His Christ. Again, we saw this in Psalm 18, right? Great salvation does the Lord bring not only to David, but to His offspring forever. Christ, in other words, will be victorious over all His enemies. And because Christ will be exalted, this leads David to the conclusion that he, as well as the rest of God's people, will be exalted together with him. He says in verse 7 and 8, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. What David is saying is that God's people will rise not because they're standing on the strength of their own two feet or their own power, but they will rise because they trust in the Lord. And the Lord saves His Christ. And because the Lord saves His Christ, the Lord will save also all those who belong to Christ. Their hope, in other words, is ultimately centered around not their own victory, but the victory of the King of Kings. You see, friends, the Gospel, the Bible, the plan of salvation, holiness, sanctification, all of the great truths and doctrines of Christianity, all of them, they're not ultimately about us. We're not the primary focus. They're all ultimately about Him. The Gospel is called the Gospel of God. Or the Gospel of the Kingdom. Because the Gospel itself is about God. It's about His Kingdom. It's about what He's doing in the world and what He will accomplish in heaven and on earth. And when the Gospel is proclaimed, it is never to be proclaimed in such a way that the emphasis falls upon us. That everything becomes about Me. You never find the apostles and the early disciples in their preaching 
particularly in the book of Acts, telling stories to people about how they can make their own lives happier and easier and more wonderful. You never see them saying anything close to this is how you can have your best life now. It doesn't even touch the vicinity. You find them proclaiming a message about a victorious king. You find them telling a grand story about how God had long ago promised to raise up David's offspring to rule over the whole world. And how when this offspring, Christ, came into the world, He was despised, He was rejected by men, and He was crucified for sins by the predetermined plan of God. And then He was raised, and now He has been exalted at God's right hand. You find them proclaiming a message about Christ. You find them pointing people's eyes to the risen King in heaven and then commanding all men everywhere to repent and find their refuge from the wrath to come. The Gospel is a message to be declared. It's not as if the focus of, of the Gospel is supposed to be a matter of just you know, trying to come up with the, the best arguments that you possibly can to persuade someone. That's totally fine. You can try to persuade people of Christianity, but fundamentally, the Gospel is to be heralded. We are like ambassadors who are coming into foreign territory and we are announcing that your nation, your nation, your nation, all your power has been conquered. And Christ, Jesus, is the one who reigns. He's the King. And now the King is delivering a message through us, His servants, to all people. You must repent because a day of judgment is coming on which He will judge the evil and the sin both in deeds and in thoughts of all men. There's nothing that's going to stop that. There's no armies. There's no world powers. When He comes to judge, He will be victorious without even a hint of rebellion that could stop Him. And so the Christians go out and you herald a message. You announce to people. The King reigns and the King summons you to Himself. And only as people are pointed to Christ again and again, only as they are called to, to direct, direct their eyes and their hearts and their minds away from themselves and to Christ, and only as they come to Him and look to Him always. Only then are the promises of blessedness and eternal life and the great inheritance given to them. And so it must be the same for us. You seek the Kingdom of God first. You seek the glory of Christ first. 
You seek to make your whole life in your home, in your marriages, in your work, when you are eating, when you are drinking. You do all things to the glory of God. We've been made, friends, fundamentally as image bearers of God not to reflect the glory of ourselves, but to reflect the glory of the Creator. And any departure from that order will necessarily lead to misery. That's what you see in the fallen world now. Image bearers pursuing primarily their own glory. That's sin. That's idolatry. But when you make your whole life, you orient everything around the pursuit of the glory of God. It is then when you will know blessedness. And as you find your greatest satisfaction in that and in glorifying Christ the King, the fruit that will come from it will ultimately be righteousness now and eternal life forever. So let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Well, Father, You have exalted Your Son, Jesus, as the King of kings, as the One who reigns over all, as the One who receives the peoples, the nations, as His possession and inheritance. And we are grateful, Lord, that in Your mercy and grace and kindness, You have sent the Gospel to us. It has been declared to us. And You have done a work in opening up our eyes to see ultimately the beauty of Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to live our lives and grow up into maturity in Christ, that our eyes would be fixed, would remain upon the glory of Christ that we would seek the honor of His name, and in so doing, we would know righteousness and ultimately eternal life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.